The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Can you imagine growing your company's revenue without increasing your marketing budget? I mean, imagine, is it really possible? To answer that question, Bill Cates, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. How you doing, man? Nice to have you here. Great to be with you. Thanks very much. So is it possible to grow revenue without increasing a marketing budget? Absolutely, it is. And it's all about the relationships we create with our clients or customers and how we leverage those relationships into new relationships. One of the things I like to talk about is multiplying your best clients, multiplying your best customers. And what we know is that serving the heck out of your customers or clients well will create incremental growth. You know, some people will talk about you. That's great. That counts. Unsolicited referrals count. But if you really want to create exponential growth, you have to find a way to leverage those great relationships. So it's all about creating engagement with your clients, leveraging that engagement, and then having a culture in place and systems in place uh, to leverage that to get introduced to more people. So are we, are we talking about mostly uh, service companies or manufacturing companies? I mean, does it work across all types of companies? Because all companies have clients and mm-hmm. some have customers, mm-hmm. right? So is there a distinction? Yeah, the distinction isn't so much client or customer. Distinction usually where it works the best has to do with the type of relationship. So typically, companies that use the word client usually refer to more of a consultative sales process. It's an ongoing relationship, but not always. I mean, manufacturers will you know have ongoing relationships with their customers and call them their customers. So, well, so the customers of a manufacturer might be a distributor, for example. Could be a distributor. Yeah. It's all about... So when the sale or the relationship is transactional, then it's a little harder to play this game, if you will. It's a little harder to leverage that because if it's kind of a one and done, it's not as easy. But if it's ongoing relationships, if it's more complicated sales, sales that require more thought, more engagement, and then we stay in touch in a way that's interactive over a period of time, that's certainly where our processes work the best. So describe the process. How does the process work? I mean, everybody loves to get referrals. Some people give referrals. My experience is most people don't really know how to do it very well. It's true. And in my speeches, workshops, I provide a statistic that I've come to learn is true for most businesses over the 25 years of doing this. And roughly 20% or so of our clients or customers will talk about us, will introduce us to others, will play the game of referrals. 
without having to ask. There are people wired to do that. We please them. They like it. And that's great. And that counts, right? We shouldn't discount the fact that we get unsolicited referrals and introductions. And then another 20%, give or take, will never do it. You could run into a burning building and save their children. They wouldn't do this (laughs) because they're just not wired that way for whatever reason. And then you have the the gold mine that most businesses are sitting on are that 60% of people will do it, but not unless you bring it up. So some of your listeners may be familiar with a concept called net promoter score. There was a book by Frank Wright called The Ultimate Question. And net promoter score essentially measures your clients or customers' willingness to recommend you. Right? Are you willing to recommend that business? And what Reichold said, that's the ultimate question, not is are they satisfied or are they loyal, but are they willing to recommend you? And my contention is that's good and that's important, but it's not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, are you leveraging that willingness? Are you leveraging those net promoter scores? Do you have a culture in place to not just become super referable, but, but leverage that and get introduced. And it really is a culture because everyone in the organization plays a role in it. Not everyone's going to be asking, not everyone's going to be reaching out to new prospects, but everyone plays a role in the firm becoming more referable. You know, what's interesting about that is that the first question, are your clients willing to refer? That's sort of an academic question because the truth is a yes or no, it doesn't matter if they're willing, great. If they're not great, you're talking about an action step. You yes. know, are they, are they actually doing it? Exactly. You know, in a certain way, it's very common sense, but I've really not heard somebody kind of take it to that level like that before. Yeah. And some firms are doing it. Some, some firms are doing a good job. So for instance, B2C, B2C firms, you'll see a lot of them using reward programs like uh, the cable companies, Comcast and Verizon, you know, refer a friend, a neighbor, a family member and save a hundred dollars off your next bill or whatever it may be. So the reward type system works pretty well in a B2C environment, not so well in a B2B environment. It usually makes it a little cheesy. And and the truth is, if you're not referable, it doesn't matter what reward you give. No one's going to talk about you or recommend you to others. So you have to make sure that that's kind of the table stakes to be in this business. But here's what we found, that the research we did actually showed a low correlation between client or customer satisfaction and the giving of referrals. In the study, only 20% of satisfied clients gave one or more referrals in the preceding 12 months. While there's a high degree of loyalty among satisfied clients, they're not necessarily making connections for us. The higher level to that is an engaged client. An engaged client is someone who, who likes your value Early in the relationship, they like the questions you ask, they like the things you teach, they like your responsive service, they like your wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. And then they also have, there's a human connection there. And you know, every business is different what type of human connection gets made. Sometimes there's more than one. Sometimes it's a, almost a, a culture of, of the human connection with a company, you see. But nonetheless, they've got to have that human connection there. And so at the beginning of the relationship, the onboarding of the new client customer throughout the relationship, we're always thinking, how do we keep connecting with value and how do we keep making that human connection? And that's kind of the secret sauce to creating advocates for our business is that human connection that we make. Well, you know what? The word advocate probably is the most important word so far because Mm -hmm. advocacy, those are the people that really go out and, and, you know, and kind of stand in front of the parade and really make it happen for the guys that they really yeah, like. Yeah, they do. They take a stake in it. First of all, they believe in our value and they want to share our value to their friends, family members, colleagues, whatever the nature of the business is. 
And so they want to advocate for the value and they also want to help us. So another part of our study showed that roughly 61% of folks give referrals to help their friend, their colleague, their business associate, to help someone else through the work we do. But about 37%, give or take, do it to help the company if you create that business friendship. Now, I was delivering a, a session once and I was talking about this idea of advocacy and the guy says, so are advocates born or are they made? And the answer is yes and yes, because some people are wired that way. Once they find something they really like, they just like to influence others. They like to share it with others. Sometimes ego gets at play, right? And in some cases, we have to nurture that and, and turn those satisfied, loyal customers or clients into advocates. But what advocates will do is they'll make sure you get a good connection, first of all, which is so important to get connected these days. And then they will... They'll follow up. They'll follow up with their colleague. Hey, have you heard from my guy yet? Or they'll follow up with you and say, hey, have you called, called my you know, <laughs> business partner yet or whatever? And so those are the people that you really want to nurture. And, and those are the ones that really move the needle for you. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get something that, uh, you know, hey, listen, Joel, there's a guy I know. He needs exactly what you do. Talk to this guy. And they feel good about being able to introduce their colleague to exactly the right resource or whatever, especially if they had that experience. But I also get these emails from time to time that just say, hey, Joel, here's somebody interesting. I think you should meet them. That's not a referral, is it? No, it's not a very good introduction. Let's put it that way. One could say it's, it falls in the camp of referrals, but there's not, not much meat on the bones, right? So there are different levels of quality here. Uh, it could be, you know, call my friend George. And you could say to me, Bill, call my friend George, you know, just use my name. Well, it's better than nothing, but George doesn't pick up his phone much these days, right? Right. Uh, right. Let's it goes to voicemail, especially if I'm not in his mobile phone. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't pick up. And he's probably wondering, you know, why did Joel give my name out to this guy? So while that's better than nothing and sometimes works, what I really advocate for these days is an actual introduction where, hey, Bill, meet George. This is what, you know, George has done for me. George, meet Bill. This is what, what he does. You know, a real, I call it an electronic well, handshake. <laughs> That's a, that's so a what, what are the mechanics of how that works? Uh, you know, when we were children, mm -hmm. uh, we learned, uh, you know, uh, Bill, this is Fred, Fred, this is Bill. <laughs> and then you shake, you know, there, there was a little etiquette to it. Right. So, but, you know, we've all kind of grown up, you know, we all grew up before uh, the digital revolution uh, of the mm -hmm. uh, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s and beyond. Mm -hmm. So what are the mechanics and is there a proper etiquette for making an introduction? Yeah, there is. And, and I don't know all the rules. I know that they say the person of the higher status is the one where, let's say you have a higher status than George. You know, I will say, George, I want you to meet Joel. You kind of have the status in that. I don't worry so much about that. When I do an email introduction, let's say I'm introducing you to my friend George or my, someone who served me. I'm going to say, Joel, I want you to meet George. George has done this for me and done this for me. And then this for me, here's his website, whatever. And then I'll say, you know, George, this is Joel. When we go way back, we've known each other forever. Da, 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 da. I think, you know, two great people should talk. So what you want to do is, first of all, if you have someone who's willing to talk about you to others, don't settle for word of mouth. Don't settle for when do you think you'll talk to him, you know, or just, you know, let me know what he says. It's amorphous. It goes out to the ether. Nothing ever happens for that, hardly. So you know, you want to say, let's talk about how you introduced me to George. You know, what do you think you need to say to George to get him to, to take my call? You know, how do you think he'll react to this? I, I want to coach my referral source a little bit. I want to talk about that 
I want to find out what's going on in George's business that's really important to him right now, right? And if I can make the introduction and my follow-up about what's on George's radar in his business right now or personal life, depending on the nature of the business, then it's a more relevant way to reach out. It's a more relevant reason to be introduced. So I try to make the most relevant possible introduction. Now, if you're introducing me to someone, you may know exactly what buttons to push, right? To get them to take my call. Or you may not. And if you don't, then you might want to say, you know, take Bill's call to be worth 10 minutes of your time. Sometimes less is more. But what we're doing is just leveraging the trust in the relationship. You know, it makes me think of a couple of things. One, most of the times that I get introductions instead of referrals, it's people who don't know me or know what I do very well. So it's kind of a best effort for somebody who doesn't know you that well or isn't that familiar. They're trying, but they don't have the ability necessarily to be able to say to somebody, listen, I did a bunch of work uh, with Joel or with Bill or with whoever. So I know exactly what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not quite sure what they do, but I think you guys are in the same neighborhood. That, that's kind of what to me an introduction is. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting when you make a referral, you know, some, they have to really know you. And, you know, as I recognize the value you say of coaching somebody on what to say. I've actually seen people that have a, a sheet called how to refer me. Mm -hmm. do, do you recommend that sort of thing? I mean, I think it's, I, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, to create advocates, people who like the work we do, who want to advocate for us need to know who we serve the best, you know, who our processes, our product, our service are, are geared towards. So they know, need to know how to identify those people. Right. And then they need to know what's the best way to connect us. We can't assume that someone who likes us wants to connect us with or really knows how to create a good referral or a good introduction, right? And there'll be degrees here. The better the referral source knows the prospect. That's what you were kind of alluding to before. The higher the trust, the more familiarity within the relationship, the stronger all of this is, the easier it goes. And, you know, sometimes they'll talk to their buddy and then their buddy calls you because they're ready. They're chomping at the bit because the, that advocate has been strong and told you. What, told you know, what one of the things that comes up here is that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're talking about reducing marketing budgets and we don't have to right. expend on advertising. Mm -hmm. But when the phone rings from a referral, mm -hmm. you still don't get to play the role of being an order taker. You still have to sell or you have to consult or you have to provide value and demonstrate what you're sold, that you're worth your salt and so forth. So, you know, to most people that you train how to give and take referrals, mm -hmm. do they have the selling skills to close most of the time when they receive the call? Some do, some don't. And that's why I'm writing a new book called uh, Radical Relevance, which is how to talk about our value better, because a lot of folks don't know how to really articulate the value. Even though they've been referred, introduced to someone, they get on the phone or they get in person and they... They don't really talk about their value in a very compelling way. Also, in my last book, Beyond Referrals, I have a section on selling skills. Now, what happens with a referral and introduction is you're certainly meeting that person at a little higher level of trust. So everything usually does go easier. You're borrowing the trust in one relationship long enough to earn your own in that new relationship. So usually they come at a higher level. Now, depending on the relationship with your previous clients who's referred you, they may be sold. They may be ready. You know, George is using you guys. That's enough for me. You know, where do I sign? And, and so there's a range of what you get. But yes, it doesn't eliminate the need to ask really good questions. I think the danger for the recipient of the referral mm -hmm. is that maybe they just take for granted that it's a lay down deal. Yeah, 
that would be a danger. You're absolutely right. Uh, I'll tell you what got me writing this newest book about how we talk about our value came from doing some interviews. I was, I was going to give a speech for a company. And so I was interviewing some of their top producers and I, you know, they're doing well in the business. Right. And so I talked to them about referrals, they get referrals. And I said to them, you know, how, how do you reach out to these new prospects? What do you say to them? And it was very trite, weak kind of stuff. And so what I learned is in, in a lot of cases, the strength of the referral, the strength of the introduction, the strength of the existing relationship was enough to pull them through a weak value proposition. You know, they made the sale in spite of it, but they also lost a lot of opportunity that they didn't have to lose by not having a great way to talk about what they did and eventually get into the opportunity to have a, a better selling environment. So, you know, you're right. You, you have to be careful about being lazy around this and just- Well, and, and also you have to understand the sales cycle because you're coming in at a different place in the sales cycle than maybe normal. You know, if you're starting with a cold call, brand new, fresh, or a lead, let's say from a conference that you go to and you get a little business card in a box and you, you mm -hmm. call somebody, say, remember last week we met- you're really starting at a different place, but you still have to learn how to get great command of that part of the cycle. No question. Your conversation has to be continually relevant. You have to know enough about them and continually ask questions so that everything you talk about and the questions you ask are relevant. You have to create a sense of compellingness and what, you know, meaning moving them along, right? Your message has and your process has to be compelling to move them along. And, you know, if you don't, go deep enough if you don't figure out what their gap is between where they are and where they want to be related to the work that you do, then, you know, you can never get them excited about closing the gap. Well, listen, uh, it's entirely possible that uh, they're going to assume that the person making the referral didn't know their problem well enough. They may know me, but they don't know the other problem, whatever. So you still have to demonstrate that you understand that you have, that you bring great competence to the table, yep. that you understand the problem that the person is bringing to you, the person that was referred that is bringing to you, mm -hmm. that you're the right person to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's uh, none of that goes away. Well, what I'll tell to some companies who have a sales process in place is my process will make your sales process work even better because your prospects will be coming to you at a higher level of trust. They will, in most cases, be further along than a lot of the folks that you meet and therefore everything gets a little bit easier. So for instance, if you want to do ask some probing questions, if I want to say, Joel, I have this process where I want to learn about you and your situation. And, and so I'm, I need to ask a few questions if you don't mind, you know, you know that your friend, Laura already went through that process with me and she liked it. And so you're going to be more open to me being a little bit more inquisitive and probing, right? Yeah, for because sure. That trust is a little higher. Well, you also have a sense about why you're doing the process, that what the outcome of the process is yes. going to be. Yes. And, and because somebody had a favorable outcome, you know, listen, uh, when you go to the doctor and you get a shot, you don't like the process, but you like the outcome of getting better. And so, right. you know, the, you kind of say, okay, listen, I, I don't really like this process too much, but I know that the outcome is going to be really good. So I'm going to tolerate going through the process. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and because my friend did it. And, yeah, and exactly. Because your friend told you what was going to happen. So my last book, Beyond Referrals, the reason I called it Beyond Referrals is because referral is not the end game. The referral is an implied benefit. The referral is a means to an end, but it's not the end. The end is the new client, the new customer, right? So we got to create that willingness, that referability. We have to get introduced, and then we have to set the appointment, 
And then we have to get in front of that person on the phone, in person, whatever it looks like, and then ultimately make the sale, bring that person on as a client. So they, all of that doesn't go away. It just gets a little easier. Okay. Uh, so, so for this particular discussion though, yeah. let's not focus on the conversion to a client and then uh, the re-engagement of that new person and bringing them on board and all this stuff. Let's stay focused on the referral part sure. because what, what I heard you say earlier was that you have to take a client and turn them into an advocate who's very engaged, who, uh, you know, wants to make referrals, uh, you know, that really wants to uh, advocate for you. How do you create that engagement? We've had a lot of people on this show talk about engagement. It's mm-hmm. a big buzzword these days. Yep. I'm not sure that very many people know how to really create it. A lot of people know how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. How do you create the kind of engagement that's going to create these lifelong advocates and people willing to make referrals? Great. It's a great question. And I'll give you the shorter version for now. So I've divided the client or customer journey into three stages. There's the prospect experience. There's the, the new client or new customer experience. And then there's the ongoing client or customer experience. Obviously, these are unequal parts. But the first part is the prospect experience. How do we create engagement with those people so that when they do become a client, we're already a little bit more referable? And in fact, creating the engagement with a prospect will convert into more sales anyway. So remember, I said we have to engage on the level of value and we have to engage on the level of who we are as an individual. So on the level of value, one of the things that you can do is just make sure that that gap is clearly defined. You know, where is the prospect now related to the work you do? Where do they want to be? What are the obstacles to getting there? What are the challenges? And what are the opportunities that may come along the way that you know, they know? And so by being able to create that clarity of where you are and where you want to go, that brings a lot of value to a lot of people because they're quite often not clear on where they are, where they want to go. So that's on the level of value with a prospect. On the level of human connection with a prospect, talking about why you believe in your value, your client-focused why, I call it. It's Maybe it's something that got you into the business in the first place. Maybe it's something that you've become passionate about now that you're in the business. Maybe it's why you move from one company to another. There's a lot of different sources of this why. But to say to a prospect, you know, that's a little bit about what we do and how we do it. I want to shift gears for a second and tell you a little bit about why I do this, what drives me every day. And that humanizes you. It humanizes you within the sales process. And in in my case, I do work with a lot of financial advisors, wealth managers, trust officers, et cetera. And, you know, for those folks, if they want to have influence over a a client's current and future financial well-being, that client, that prospect needs to have a sense of who this person is. That human connection needs to get made in most cases. Well, you listen, uh, you know, I'm in the, you know, as you know, I'm also in yeah. the money business running a hedge fund and the things that I do. And, you know, and I, I kind of make a joke, but it's not that funny that we value money more than we value our lives. And I'll, I'll tell you something. So people have to really trust these financial advisors. And I'll tell you one of the little things I say that's somewhat funny, but true. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I said to you, Bill, give me a hundred grand, we're going to do a deal together. You're, you're going to, you're going to look up and down. You're going to research, do everything in the world. But if I say, listen, I got to go downtown for lunch and you say, oh, fine, let's call an Uber. You'll get in a stranger's car in five seconds. <laughs> you know, <It's> true. <laughs> you'll, you'll jump in the guy's car. Uh, the guy could be a maniac and who knows what could happen, you know? It's, it's and, true. But, but if I ask you for money, you're going to be so reluctant. So it's a funny, so you're totally right that people need to understand one another for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, before they can really kind of have that relationship. So here's another question. I want to hear the other segments, the way you do it, kind of, a, that's the onboarding one. You had two other ones. 
Do you work at the company level or do you work at the individual person level? Uh, the answer is yes. Both of them? <laughs> yeah, so I do. Okay. So a lot of my clients are at the home office, the executive VP of sales and marketing, installing my process in the entire company uh, through our video training. Okay, so listen, so here's the question. Yeah. A lot of our clients are larger companies. Exactly. They have lots of people in lots of layers. Yeah. How do you install the set of values at the home office and then ripple them through the organization? I mean, you say, make sure you ask the human question and say, here's why I'm in the business. There's a very realistic and friendly way to say that. And then there's mm -hmm. a fake mm -hmm. way of saying that mm -hmm. you know, where you're just going through the motions. How right. do you help people to adopt these principles and right. kind of own them in their core? Yeah. So when I'm working with the highest level of leadership, it really starts with the principles, just as you said, and then moves to strategies, not so much the tactics. We believe that the tactics will trickle down to the frontline folks. But for instance, if the concept, the goal, the principle is to make you know, our company more referable, to, to generate more advocates for our business, if that's a decision that leadership wants to make, then there are key strategies to do that. And that's where that's engagement with value, engagement on the personal level come into play, right? Then what are the mechanics of that? How do you actually do that? How does a customer service rep do that? How does a sales rep do that? What is the role of someone who never talks to a customer or a client? What is their role in all of this? And so that's the thing we have to flesh out first. So then we can then go deeper and deeper. So there's the principles, the strategies, and the sub-strategies and the tactics. So I'm not going to be working with an executive VP and telling him how to ask for referrals, right? No. But, but if he wants to create a culture where his people will do that, and not fear it and be more effective with it and have a firm that they are excited about representing, et cetera, et cetera, then he or she definitely can, can control that. I work with a lot of banks, for instance, and, and the banks will brag to me that they have high net promoter scores, that they, their clients are loyal, their clients are willing to recommend them. And I say, great, you know, how are you leveraging them? What are you doing with those net promoter scores? And they'll either look at me like a deer in headlights and not sure what I mean by leveraging that. Or sometimes they contact me because they know they need to leverage it. They know they need to do more than just create this. And so that's a high level conversation that we have first. And then we put the systems and, and mechanical things in place to do that. Do you ever get pushback on the implementation of cultural kind of initiatives? Because, you know, we live in a very short term, quarter to quarter stock market driven environment. And you're talking about something that impacts the long run. I mean, do you ever get pushback on that topic? I wouldn't say that I get pushback on it. What happens is um, timing is critical, that we've got to make sure we do it at the right time, because if there are too many other initiatives and things going on, then it won't get the legs that we needed to get. But it does start at the top. There has to be a, a long-term commitment to doing this over time, because it doesn't happen right away. It takes time to for the, the fruits of our labor to show up. And one of the biggest challenges I face is the changing that's always going on in these companies where new people are taking on new roles. And then the things that I've helped put in place, even proven to work, sometimes a new person comes in and has their own stuff. That's the problem with corporate America. You know, they create a lot of problems from themselves by moving people around all the time. Yeah. So first I had a three-year deal with Merrill Lynch and we were doing great stuff and we were moving the needle. I was working with the marketing department. So a new guy takes over the marketing department and says, well, you know, I've got these things I want to do. 
And as you know, marketing departments aren't always interested in results. They're interested in doing stuff. <laughs> and so, um, but Tom, my, my, the guy that was left there, my advocate says, look, guys, this is the one thing we've done in years that has actually moved the needle and brought us more revenue right? At a minimal cost. And it's demonstrable, right? I mean, demonstrable. How, do you, how, do, how do you know? Like how, like, how do you measure that? Well, because they had, a, they had a, a control group and they had a group that got exposed to a part of the training. And then they had a group that got exposed to the full training and the follow-up. And so here's what it was. And, and this was with Merrill. So the control group in terms of new client acquisition over the course of a year, their net new client acquisition was minus one meaning they brought in less families than they lost, right? So it was <laughs> minus one. The folks who went through the training- That's not a success formula in the long term, I guess, right? It isn't, it isn't. Now they grow assets sometimes yeah. within their current client base. So there is some growth, but it's not new households as they like to talk about it. And then, um, so folks who went through the training, and in this case, it was a full day that I spent with everybody, their net households went up 7%. Well, that's a pretty nice jump, right? But the people who went through the training and then the follow-up coaching that we put in place, they were up 21% in terms of net new households in the course of a year. And that's a huge amount of dollars, by the way. That, that, that could be about. very material. It's huge. Yeah. And yet, you know, and Tom's saying, look, guys, we've proven this will work. Why do we want to do something else? And, you know, he lost the fight and I moved on and he moved on yeah. as well. But that, that's what I'm up against quite often is, is the changing of the guard. Yeah. So there were two more, there were two more categories of customers. Yeah. There was prospects. Yeah. So the prospect, right. The longer term ones. Yeah. And then the onboarding, when someone becomes a client. Yeah. Customer. How do we create engagement there? Engagement, remember, is value and human connection. Right. Okay. So how do we do it? Well, so it could be inviting them to an educational opportunity afterwards. It could be sending them a book or some literature on how to make the most of the relationship. Financial advisor could be a check-in call after they get their first statement to make sure that everything's clear on the statement. You know, we just, every business is different, but how really it's anything where there's a connection, anything where there's a connection. And then there's a human connection too. invite them to a client appreciation event or have other people in the firm, send a card or make a phone call as they welcome into the metaphorical family, if you will. So one advisor, for instance, uh, Brian Sweet in, in Minnesota has what he calls a 90-day dazzle. He doesn't tell his clients this, but the firm puts these new clients through the 90-day dazzle to make sure all the ways he can provide value to the client is put forth uh, and the clients go, wow, so much better than the last firm I worked with. What happens on the 91st day? Is it over? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and then, <laughs> no. then it's the ongoing relationship. And the client doesn't know it's 90 days. And I'm sure sometimes it's 83 days and sometimes. You know, you know it, it kind of makes me think, you know, uh, my daughter's dating a boy. He's a nice boy. You know, he'll get a, get a holiday present, you know, and then let's say they get married. No more presents for you. Now you're in the family. Now we treat you like family. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully that's what a business will not do. Sometimes it's not that, that's kind of the problem with the 90 day dazzle. That's uh, the, the dating phase. <laughs> well, the, the, well, the, what's happened there, though, is they found so many other different ways to serve the client and strengthen the relationship. And then, of course, they have to make sure that that ongoing client service promise is in place so that they're acting on what they promised. We found that even before someone becomes a client, just by talking about what it will look like if we work together, here's how we'll stay in touch, that that 
creates that feeling, that sense of engagement with the prospect, even before they've become a client, just by talking about it, just by laying out, this is what our client service promise looks like. And this is what you can expect. You know, hopefully that 90 days helps people get to know each other better. And then, then they kind of figure out what the next period of time looks like. Yeah. And they have their plan in place. They know exactly how often they're going to meet and how often they're going to talk on the phone. And they have these client appreciation events. So it's well planned out. It's well thought out. It doesn't just, I think the the takeaway is that uh, these things are not random. They're not spontaneous. The best ones are well thought out. They're well crafted. They're sincere. It doesn't mean that they're insincere. Exactly. But I think that there's some thinking that requires going into it. That's the takeaway for me from what you're saying. Yeah, you're right. It's a process. It's run by a checklist. There's usually somebody in charge to make sure all the points are being hit. If something on the checklist is not being hit, it's not because it was forgotten. It's because it didn't make sense for this particular person. Yeah, and what I recommend is every company at the end of the year or the beginning of the new year, they reevaluate their onboarding process and their client service process. And what do we want to add? What do we forget about? What do we want to subtract? And just each year, it just gets a little better and better and better. Do companies do a good job of automating those or are, they, are these purely human? No, some companies do a very good job of automating it. You know, with just about any client relationship management program, you can trigger all that stuff digitally. So yeah, they will have, you know, connection or reminders that get triggered automatically. So you can't forget about it. Uh, you all can right. run an Let's internal marketing campaign, if you will. Let's do the last phase. So we got uh, the onboarding or or we have the prospect phase. We have the 90 day dazzle brand new client phase. Love that, by the way. Tell your guy he's awesome. (laughs) Hopefully he won't listen to Hopefully his clients won't listen to the show. Although they probably, (laughs) they probably will because they'll catch on to his trick. And what's the long term look like? Yeah. So I call it a client service promise, but it's essentially a model in place that you make sure you follow. And what some companies will do, they'll segment their clients or customers into A, Bs, and Cs, let's say. And so the A's get everything. The A's get, you know, it depends on the business. Every business is going to be different. But they get, you know, a couple of live meetings a year or whatever. And, you know, the B might get one live meeting a year. And the C's, everything's on the phone. And and then there's events that they get invited to. And there's, you know, other check-ins and things that they do. So every business is different. But it's scheduled. It's clear on what they're going to get. Now, what you can't do is if you segment your base or the importance of segmenting your base is because you can't give A-level service relationship contact to every one of your clients unless they're all A clients. Now, some firms actually have done that. You know, but but it begs the question, what is an A client? Now, is it the largest client? Is it the most profitable client? Is it the client that gives you the most referrals? I mean, yeah. I mean how, are, how do you see guys segmenting their databases? Yeah, it's very subjective. And, and you're right. Sometimes it's the amount of business you're doing with them now and into the future. Sometimes if you have a client that maybe you're doing B-level business, but they have the potential to do A-level business, you give them the A-level treatment. So that's one way to go about it. If you have someone who's... Now, people on referrals tend to refer lateral and down on the economic ladder, generally speaking. So it's unusual for, let's say, a C-level client to refer you and introduce you with much oomph to be an A-level uh, clients. It happens from time to time, but it's less likely. So what, that's why most people will segment their clients and then segment the service level that each one of those clients gets, unless there's some other things like a B, in other words, someone may have do B-level business with you from a financial standpoint, but... They give you a lot of referrals. They know a lot of people. They're well-connected. So maybe you want to give them a level treatment as well. 
so there are some intangibles that go into that. You know, listen, Bill, thank you so much for being mm-hmm. on the show. What's fascinating about this is it's something that is so simple, mm-hmm. really very scientific, needs to be very well thought out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's masterful, you know, your level of authority in this area, and you're just, you're awesome. So thank you very much. I love having you as a professional colleague and as a friend, and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing with us. You bet. My pleasure. Well, listen, your contact information will be in the show notes in case anybody wants to get a hold of you. Mm-hmm. And when it comes time for you to write your new book or when it comes out, you'll, uh, you'll be back in touch? Oh, you bet I will. All <laughs> right. We'll reach out then. Listen, man, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Joel. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.